Let's open our Bibles together to 2 Samuel chapter 20. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 20 is where we are here in our study uh, through First and 2 Samuel. Let's look together at these 26 verses tonight as we consider uh, the, the subject, uh, an unstable kingdom, an unstable kingdom. 2 Samuel 20 and verse number 1. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, we have no portion in David and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri, But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. And so they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed to him. So David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men, and the Cherethites, and the Pelethites, and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword and its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's left hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach, spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and Amasa died. Then Joab and Abisha, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri, and one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway, and anyone who came by seeing him stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth Makkah. And all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Makkah. They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. And he came near her and the woman said, are you Joab? He answered, I am. 
Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. And she said, They used to say in former times, Let them but ask counsel at Abel. And they settled a matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, well, far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That's not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give up him alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. And the woman went to all the people in her wisdom. They cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home, and Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Now, Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder, and Shiva was secretary. Zadok and Abiathar were priests, and Ira, the Jairite, was also David's priest. Well, when I'm studying each week for my sermons, the first thing I do is take the text. Uh, I put it into a document as an Apple user. It's a pages document. Uh, same thing as Word. I put it into a document. I print that document out, and as I am reading through the text, I just write down anything and everything that I am thinking as I'm reading through this text for the first time. Before I go to a commentary, listen to another preacher preach on it, I'm just writing everything that comes to my mind as I'm reading through this text as I believe the Lord is showing it to me. Well, uh, as I did that uh, this week on Monday morning in preparation for tonight's study, I read through the 26 verses and the very first thing I wrote down on my piece of paper, which did not take me long to write, was this phrase, what a mess. That's what I wrote down. What a mess. That's the best way to describe my feelings of what has happened to David's kingdom. And the truth is, it is extremely similar to the same feelings I have when I listen to or watch the daily news about the things happening in our world. What a mess. And this mess, I remind you, is the result of of human sinfulness. We live in an unstable world filled with unstable people working and living in unstable communities governed by unstable leaders. It is a mess. And it's from Scripture that we see these things mirrored before us even today. King David has not only overcome at this point in our study the rebellion that was against him by his very son Absalom, but he's now returning to Jerusalem to his rightful place as king of Israel. But as we looked at last Wednesday night, it's a very disappointing return. Things are different, and they will never be like they once were. He's an imperfect king attempting to rule over an imperfect kingdom. And as we have unfolded these events that we're studying, we're actually the seeing the story of not just David's kingdom, we are seeing the story of all earthly kingdoms. And it all points us forward to the day when the perfect kingdom will arrive under the perfect reign of the perfect king. 
Not David, but the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the hope of the world is the kingdom of God, not the unstable kingdoms of this earth. So while David and his kingdom, through these 20 chapters, has provided us from time and again glimpses of the kingdom that is to come through our Lord Jesus Christ, we've also learned that David's kingdom was not the promised kingdom. His kingdom was flawed, unstable, and constantly on the verge of collapse. And let me remind you, even as proud citizens of the United States of America, all kingdoms of this earth are in the same condition. Every kingdom is flawed. Every kingdom is unstable. Every kingdom is constantly on the verge of collapse. Every kingdom, even our democracy, is ultimately an un stable kingdom. Now, in the story of David, especially as we come to the end of his life in these closing chapters, this instability is never more clearly seen than what we see it now. In fact, I wrote down four observations from chapter 20 as we think about the instability of David's kingdom. Uh, This earthly kingdom under David's reign was first a kingdom of trouble. It was a kingdom of trouble. We see it in verses 1 through 2. And again, going on with my uh, routine of writing things down, I wrote directly to the left-hand column of verses 1 and 2. I wrote these words, more trouble, more trouble. Specifically, more troublemakers. David's kingdom has been filled with troublemakers, Thorns in the flesh, if you will, beginning all the way back with his father-in-law, Saul. And now, having just escaped the troublemaking aggression of his son, Absalom, he finds a new troublemaker. I mean, he's not even settled back into Jerusalem yet, and right there waiting on him is more trouble. It's like he gets no break as a leader. Aggressive antagonism is always around the corner for David. But so it is when a kingdom is filled with sinners. Where there are sinners, there are always troublemakers. There's troublemakers in the government. There's troublemakers in your family. There may be some troublemakers in our church from time to time. That's because we are sinners. And where there are sinners, we are prone to cause and see and experience trouble. This man's name, this particular troublemaker, is Sheba. He's described in verse 1, look at it there in your text, as a worthless man. Worthless. In the Hebrew, that word for worthless is the word Belial. Belial, it means Wicked and rebellious. This is his M.O. This is his reputation. And interestingly enough, the verse tells us that he's from the tribe of Benjamin. Who else is from the tribe of Benjamin? Saul. So he has some historical connections to past hurts, perhaps, even some ongoing rivalries that exist between David and Saul. He's a worthless man, a wicked, rebellious 
troublemaker. And that's his reputation. Here he attempts to lead Israel to succeed from David's authority. Look at it again in verse 1. He blew a trumpet and said, we have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. By the way, whenever we see the son of Jesse being referenced by these troublemakers throughout First and Second Samuel, it was always a disparaging term toward David. This was a disrespectful. We, we, we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse, David. Every man to his tents, O Israel. In other words, David's kingdom's not for us. That's what Sheba's saying. We don't want him as our leader. We don't want to be a part of his rule. This kingdom's not for us. He's calling Israel to leave David, succeed from his kingdom, and find a better place, a better king. And verse 2 tells us there that all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, but the men of Judah followed their king. So uh, the southern group of the Israelites, Judah, Stayed with King David while the northern tribes, the rest of Israel, began to follow Sheba. So as David returns to Jerusalem, he does so with only a small part of his kingdom intact. And we talked about this last week when we were closing out chapter 19. That You would think that David, as he began his reign, would be able to bring reconciliation and unity. But he was unable to do that. In fact, it will never exist until the perfect King Jesus comes back to establish his kingdom on this earth. The kingdom is not intact. In fact, it's unstable. It's divided. But like David's kingdom, the kingdoms of this earth are also filled with troublemakers. As I mentioned a moment ago, even churches can have at times people like Sheba who are prone to cause trouble against God's appointed plan as well as God's anointed men. But in the Beatitudes, let me remind you what Jesus said. Blessed are the peacemakers. Not the troublemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are called children of God. Think about this with me. He's saying here, Jesus is saying, those who pursue peace rather than cause trouble are the ones whom we can mark with absolute confidence that they are children of God. They're children of God. We can't move past this without taking inventory of our own lives. Look at your relationships this evening, your marriages, your parental relationships, relationships with people in this church, relationships with me. All your relationships. Look at your relationships tonight. And consider your actions within those relationships. Can you honestly say that in these relationships that you are a source of peace? Or is it more apparent that perhaps you can be at times a source of trouble? I'll give you one thought and I'll move on. We are never more like Satan than when we accuse and cause trouble against God's people. We are never more like Satan than when we accuse and cause trouble against God's people. And we are never more like Christ than when we pursue and make peace with God's people. But David's kingdom, it's a kingdom of trouble. The kingdom you and I live in, 
a kingdom of trouble. All right? It's not the only thing. Briefly, secondly, a kingdom of sadness. A kingdom of sadness. That's verse 3. It's the only verse that I'm going to talk about this in relation to sadness. In fact, it's very brief. It talks about David's arrival back to his palace in Jerusalem, and he discovers what his son Absalom had done to the ten concubines that David had left behind for the purpose of keeping the house in order. Now, we're not going to revisit those events other than to note the sadness of the whole ordeal, beginning with David, who in the first place fell prey to the pressures of the kingly culture of all the kings around him by bringing women in as concubines, something that was forbidden for him to do as God's king. But he did it anyway. So this whole sad thing that's unfolding, even in Absalom's actions against them, it really always goes back to David's sin. But what David did to these women weighed heavy on David also. And I think he knows that he's partly responsible for having these these women in the first place due to Absalom's actions. But verse 3 does tell us that as soon as he returned, he took them and he put them in a place of residence where he provided for them the rest of his life, their life. And the Scripture is also clear to point out here that David ceased any intimate relationship with them, and they lived as if they were widows until the day of their death. It's sad, isn't it? I noted a couple things. David is not imprisoning them, by the way. He's protecting them. He places them in a protected environment in order to keep from happening again what Absalom had wickedly done prior to David's return. It also seems to be the end of David's practice of having concubines as if he's repenting of those decisions because now he's distancing himself from his previous behavior by putting them in an entirely different residence and not going into them any longer. But the whole thing is just immensely sad. These women represent the fact that David's kingdom is suffering the consequences of sinful behavior, both his and others. But when we think about the specific events of verse 3, we also recognize that this type of sadness is all around us. Sex trafficking, abuse, other nauseating sins of pure wickedness are in the very city in which you and I live. And it's here at high rates in this kingdom. And it's immensely sad to see the worst of sinful behavior existing all around us. It's a kingdom of trouble. It's a kingdom of sadness. Right, right down number three, it's a kingdom of violence and death. A kingdom of violence and death. This is really the bulk of the chapter from verse 4 to verse 22. So here's how it unfolds. David comes to Amasa, his new chief commander of the army, after what appears to be his frustration with Joab and demotion of him. And he tells Amasa to go get the men together and go after Sheba, this troublemaker. He had three days to do it. But for reasons unmentioned for us in the text, Amasa was delayed and he didn't come back within the three days that were allotted for him. David's getting impatient. He believes that what Sheba is doing could be worse than what Absalom did. So he says, we got to get after this guy before he gets away with it. So David calls his nephew, Abisha, who happened to be also Joab's brother. And he tells Abisha to go get some men together and pursue Sheba because he had not heard from Amasa. 
So Abisha does, and verse 7 tells us that he uses some men who were once under Joab's commands. Now, I see that, and immediately my, mind's begin, my mind begins to turn a little bit here. I'm asking some questions. Why is Abisha using Joab's men? And where is Joab? Well, it's, don't have to go far to begin to see the answers to some of those questions, because in verse 8, it tells us that Joab was with Abisha, his brother. And true to Joab's character, he had no intention of listening to the king and allowing David to sideline him from the action. You know why Joab's there, even though David didn't want him there? Joab is there because he has a plan, and that plan only involves advancing his cause. He may say he's there on behalf of the king and the king's purposes, but he's really only looking out for himself. And when you read these verses, it becomes quickly apparent that Abisha isn't the one calling the shots at all. It's actually Joab. And David never intended that. But this is how Joab always, Joab always operated, even if it was for David. He did things his way, his way, not the king's way, even when he did it for the king. Now follow that for a minute because it has significant spiritual implications in our own Christian discipleship journey. Are we guilty of doing things our way even when we say what we're doing is for the king? We know the Lord told me to do it. I don't believe half of that unless it's in the Bible. Could it, could it be that we're really trying to advance our cause, our agenda, what we want to accomplish? That's what Joab always did, even though he said, oh, it's all for the Lord. It's for the Lord. It's for the Lord. It's for the king. Think about it. He executed Abner when David wanted to make peace with Abner. Joab killed Absalom when David wanted his son to be spared. Joab's constantly seeking to advance David's kingdom by muscle and sword. And now he's at it again. They come to Gibeon where they meet Amasa. In fact, look at it there. The phrase says, Amasa came to meet them. I think the author wants us to know this, this was an innocent setup. Now, we, we don't know. It's, it's easy to say, well, well, well Amasa had, a, had this instruction from the king. He was supposed to be there three days. He didn't show up. Maybe he was lazy back home playing the Xbox when he should have been getting the men together. I don't think that's necessarily fair. How do we not know that, that in the midst of this, in the midst of this, he's, he's getting called up in the battle himself? We, we don't know why Amasa didn't show up. And even his meeting of Abishai here, it's just, it's just innocent. He goes to meet them. It's like it's a setup. Oh, and it gets worse. Look at this. Joab greets Amasa with the Jewish greeting of shalom, which means peace. It's not just something they did in the old customs in the history of Israel. If you travel with us to Israel, as we are tentatively planning a trip for 2024, then our, all of our interactions that we get together with is with the Jewish people. Shalom, shalom. It's a greeting. It's a standard greeting. It's a greeting of peace. Look at what he says there. Is it well with you? Is it well with you? Peace, shalom, my brother. But Joab's intentions were anything but peace. The next thing to follow was a Jewish greeting of a kiss on the cheek. 
That's something that I never get comfortable with. I'm perfectly fine with shalom. (laughs) But usually in the Jewish greeting, you have shalom followed by a kiss. And when Joab goes to kiss Amasa, he grabs his beard with his right hand, which would totally freak me out if somebody else is grabbing my beard. And just picture here with his right hand, he's going to grab his beard. But what Amasa doesn't see is that in his left hand, he takes his sword. And while he goes in for the kiss, he stabs him in the stomach. He thrusts it right there, killing him. With his right hand, he's pretending to express love. But with his left hand, he's revealing the reality of his hatred. And that's it. Pretends to kiss him, sticks a sword in, kills him, leaves him there, and they're out. It's time to pursue Sheba. Eventually, a servant of Joab discarded the body, as we read, by placing Amasa's remains on the side of the road, covering it with a garment. And when you read that, the violence and lack of mercy is just simply astonishing. So Joab, without the consent of David, is back in charge. And he has pursued Sheba all the way to the northern town of Abel. But something is of interest here. Maybe you caught this as we read it earlier ago. Look at verse 14. Sheba's initial persuasion back in verse 2 was all the men of Israel. Did you notice that? Sheba blew the trumpet. We have no portion in David. We don't want to be a part of his kingdom. And all the men of Israel go with him. But now when we get to verse 15, it's not mentioning all all the men of Israel. It's actually diminishing to all the Bichrites. All the big rights. It seems that Sheba wasn't as persuasive as he initially thought that he was. This large contingency of people that was initial in Sheba's desire to leave David is now just a small group of friends and family, the big rights. The big rights. We might even call them the bitter rights. Regardless, they were trapped, and Joab and his men were now attempting to besiege the entire city of Abel, destroy it if necessary, in order to get Sheba. Think about that for a moment. This is how violent and destructive Joab has become. He is willing to take out an entire town of innocent people just to capture one worthless guy and a small group of cronies. We see this all around us, don't we? It happens in politics churches, even families, we get so wrapped up in dealing with the wrongs of one individual or a small group of people that we're willing to hurt a lot of other innocent people in the process just to get what we wanted. As I'm thinking about this in terms of application in my own life, I'm talking to me tonight, I write down in my notes, beware if I find the personality of Joab arising in my own heart. That I'm willing to hurt a lot of other innocent people in order just to accomplish my goal. That's the scene here. He's getting ready to take out a bunch of God's people. A healthy, good, loyal city. All because he wanted one one man. Thankfully, however, in verse 16, and some of you ladies are like, it's about time a woman shows up. All these men causing all these problems, and now we got this wise woman showing up. She's fixing to straighten everybody out, and she does. 
Verse 16, a wise woman appears to be an official representative of the city. She seeks to calm Joab and his men and bring some sort of peace to this chaos. Again, the picture is the walled city. It's it's so much different than where you and I live. All the cities have walls, and, and, and they're battering down the door. They're trying to get in the gate. They're causing all this ruckus. And she shows up. All we know about her is that she's a wise woman. Of Abel, the city of Abel. She reminds Joab that while he and his men are acting like troublemakers themselves, she and her city were peacemakers and faithful to King David. She then tells Joab, look at it there beginning verses 16 and following. She then tells Joab that he's fixing to swallow up the Lord's possession, the Lord's heritage. People, a city that belongs to God. And so she asks him the question, why would you do that? Why would you do this to the Lord's faithful people? It's a good question, isn't it? Perhaps a good question that all of us should ask when we're tempted to cause trouble against God's people. Why would you do this? Why would you do this? Why would you make that accusation? Why would you cause that trouble? Why would you create this rift? This is the Lord's people. This is the Lord's church. This is the Lord's chosen. Why would you do this to the people, the church, the elect that belong to God? This is what she's saying. And like most of us who are acting out in our own self-interest, Joab is completely oblivious to his own ways. Look at how he answers in verse 20. Joab answered, oh, far be it from me. Far be it. And I should swallow up and destroy. Are you kidding me? That is absolutely ridiculous. Swallowing up and destroying is Joab's entire M.O., He's a man of constant violence and disruption, even, be- when he, even when he believes he's serving the interest of the king. Again, I write down, it's a mess. And here's what happens, and we've got to hurry. Joab tells her, hey, look, I'm sorry. We're not here after you, we're here after Sheba, the one who's lifted up his hand against God's anointed. So if you'll give us Sheba, we'll be on our way and we'll not touch your city. Now, to me, and I'm sorry, when I read things like this, especially in the Old Testament, I, I, my imagination just runs wild. And, and I think the scene would be incredibly funny if it wasn't so sad. Because she agrees to throw Sheba's head over the wall of the city into the possession of Joab. Now, I have a lot of questions. How did that happen? Did they catapult it over? Did they have a net and throw it over? Did they just drop it? I mean, how did it happen? How long did it take? I mean, were they all sitting down at the base of the wall, eating a pack of nabs, just kind of looking up, waiting for this head to come flying over the city? What were Joab and his men doing? What did it look like when it finally happened? And they, they, they have a basket, and they're like, oh, God, got it. I don't know how this unfolded. But we read here that the head finally came flying over. Sheba was taken care of, and Joab goes back to Jerusalem. It's a mess. But we need to close this out with one more observation. Write down, and I'll, I'll just give me five minutes. 
This is a kingdom of corruption and instability. It's a kingdom of trouble. It's a kingdom of sadness. It's a kingdom of violence and death. It's a kingdom of corruption and instability. This is verses 23 through 26. And interestingly enough, these verses mirror what we read back in chapter 8. In fact, write it down there in your notes because you might want to go back. The best way to see this is just to parallel the two passages. So verses 23 through 26 of chapter 20, they parallel chapter 8, verses 15 through 18, but with some slight adjustments. What it is is a list of officers in David's kingdom, right? But the differences now compared to back in chapter 8 when everything was righteous, peaceful, and unified, it's very telling. So let me summarize it. In 2 Samuel chapter 18, when the list of officers are read, the very first thing it says in verse 15 is that David reigned over all Israel and administered justice and equity to all the people. That is, he ruled in righteousness and peace. But now, look at verse 23. Look at verse 24. Go ahead. Look at verse 25 and 26. It ain't there. Nothing is said at all about David. Follow me. What once described David's kingdom, it's no longer true. Now, Joab, as we see, is still over the army, but not like the beginning, right? In chapter 20, he's over the army due to corruption, selfish gain, Brutal force. Amasa was supposed to be over the army. Well, Joab, like anybody else that stood in his way, he took care of it. So he's still there, but not in the same way that he was supposed to be back in chapter 8. Now, Benaiah, he has the same office. Jehoshaphat, Zadok, and Abathar had the same office. David's son, however, are now mentioned. They're no longer priests. A man named Ira has now been added to the list of priests. There is an addition in chapter 20 that was not present in chapter 8. It's verse 24. Look at this. Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. Ah. So it looks like the House of Representatives in uh, Israel got together and passed a new bill. It went to the Senate, and the president signed it. We're going to have a new department. Department of forced labor. It's a new office. And I don't have time to go into it tonight, but just mark it down in your minds. That issue alone will be the final straw that divides the kingdom of Israel. Now, here's the point. Things have drastically changed in the kingdom. David's kingdom had become like the kingdoms of this world Oh, we go all the way back to the beginning of 1 Samuel when they said, give us a king. We just want to be like everybody else. Well, guess what? You got what you wanted. You went against God's plan, and now you got what you wanted. God's kingdom that's supposed to be separated and holy and unlike any other nation and kingdom is now just like everybody else. And it will, in fact, never recover to where it had been. When David ruled it with righteousness, peace, and stability. And that's because David wasn't wise enough. He wasn't good enough. 
He wasn't strong enough to establish a permanent kingdom like that. There's only one who can do that. Oh, there's only one who will do that. And that is King Jesus. So again, our hope tonight is not in the kingdoms of this world. Our hope is in the kingdom of God. His kingship is the answer to all of the instability and all of the brokenness of this earth. Everything we've seen tonight in our story is true of us. We live in a kingdom of trouble, sadness, violence, death, corruption, instability. But thanks be to God as his people, we don't ultimately belong here. We are looking for our king to return and bring the perfection that he promised. And that's the point. The hope of this world is not in David's kingdom or any other kingdom. Our hope is in the promise God made to David. And that is through you a perfect king and a perfect kingdom will come. A kingdom, as Revelation tells us, kingdom of this world that will become the kingdom of our Lord where he will reign forever. And that kingdom, Hebrews tells us, will never be shaken. It'll never be unstable. Romans tells us it's a kingdom of peace and joy and perfection. Jesus said in John 18, it's a kingdom void of fighting and division. No more trouble, no more sadness, no more violence, no more death, no more corruption, no more instability, no more sin. And it is to this kingdom that we seek and live for. I close with this verse, Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44. The prophet writes, and in the days of those kings, what kings? Well, King David, King Nebuchadnezzar, King Biden, King whoever. In the days of all the kings of the earth, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdoms be left to another people. Those kingdoms will break in pieces. He will bring them to an end. And his kingdom will stand forever. It certainly brings a new fervor to the Lord's prayer, doesn't it? Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Say that together with me. Your kingdom come. May we look for the kingdom, the perfect kingdom of Christ. Let's stand together for prayer.